0: Genesis chapter 3. It is estimated that the average person speaks around 7,000 words per day. Uh, We really are a speaking, talking, communicating people. Uh, Words are part of almost everything that we do. When you go to work, you talk. Uh, When you're at play, you talk. And uh, sometimes our words accomplish very, very little. All those thousands of words, uh, often very little to show for them of any good. And at other times, actually, our words accomplish a great deal and make a huge impact, either for good or for ill. Uh, But which of us could actually say that our words have changed the world? Even just a few of them, three, four, five, six, ten of your words have had an impact or changed the world. The nativity scene that comes to so many of our minds at Christmas time, I think is a reminder that words have changed the world. At the center of the nativity scene, if you think what that scene looks like, if you, maybe if you have a little nativity set, what's at the very center of that? At the very center of Christmas is a baby, baby Jesus lying in a manger born of a virgin woman. And behind that scene are two sayings that forever changed the world. The first saying, we might say, represents the problem, and the second, the solution to it. And like it or not, these sayings have bearing not just on your life today, but also on you for all of eternity. And so we're going to look this morning at two sayings that forever changed the world. Saying number one went something like this, man said, I will be like God. And just to be clear, I don't think man ever actually vocalized those specific words, but he said those words in his heart. He said, I will be like God. Let's back up and get the context. God had created Adam and Eve and he placed them in the Garden of Eden and everything was more or less perfect. Uh, The garden uh, was amazingly fruitful. It brought forth abundantly with, with minimal effort, we might even say. Adam and Eve's lives were enjoyable and they were free from any form of pain or any form of anguish or sorrow. Their bodies were healthy and strong. Their relationship with each other was uh, complementary and fulfilling. And ultimately, even their relationship with God was rich and satisfying. God had created that perfect world and he had set the rules and the boundaries that would perpetuate that wonderful life and existence. And don't think of a bunch of constraining rules that are stated in the negative. They're all stated in the positive except for one. Things like be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound negative? No, not at all. And things like subdue it. Subdue the earth and have dominion over it. That also sounds pretty amazing. Eat whatever you want. Did you know that was in the Bible? Genesis chapter 1 verse 30. Eat whatever you want. Wouldn't it be cool if you could do that today and that not be a problem? I mean, endless supply of food and you just eat it and eat it and eat it and it's all good. What a great life. God only gave one command or rule that was stated in the negative, And that didn't mean that it was bad. It was just that there was just one don't do this type of statement. Look with me. Let's back up into Genesis chapter 2. I want to read verses 16 and 17. We read there, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. There you go. Eat whatever you want. This is going to be great. Verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Next thing you know, Satan comes slithering slithering up to Eve in the form of a serpent and he starts talking to her. And you probably remember how the conversation went. It's recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3. We'll pick up there in verse 4 of chapter 3. It says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And notice the phrase that comes next. And you will be like God. Let's just look for a moment at man's statement there. Satan told them that if they ate the, tr- the, the, the fruit, that they would be like God. And so reaching up for that forbidden fruit and reaching out for it, they said this I will be like God. What does this statement in action reveal about mankind? What does it reveal about Adam and Eve and ultimately us? Well, the statement reveals that man, he is proud. He says, I will be like God. This is about him and this is about his greatness. He's proud and he's also grasping. He's reaching out for the fruit. But more than that, he's grasping after deity. He wants to be like God. He's proud. He's grasping and he's seeking something for himself. There's a certain degree of discontent within him. He's discontent with the perfect world and life that God has given him. He's sitting there saying, I want more. There's something better out there for me. And so he's proudly, selfishly grasping after something for himself. I will be like God. And ultimately, he's sinning. He's directly disobeying God's command. And that is what sin is. It's breaking God's laws. And as you know, the rest is history. Man's statement of I will be like God was met by a sentence. The sentence of death. And so we want to look at that for a moment. Genesis chapter 3 verses 14 to 24 records uh, that God cursed Adam and Eve. He also cursed the serpent and the ground. Life would never, ever be the same. Man was placed under God's curse. Uh, the woman would bring forth children in pain. And her relationship to her husband would no longer uh, be easy. There would now be conflict and, and, and this relationship of, of submission. There would be a struggle there. Her home and her family where she would probably be inclined to, to literally find her greatest level of significance. That place, her home would become her greatest place most likely of pain, toil and trouble. And for the man, he would meet pain and trouble in his work. The ground would no longer willingly yield its fruit. Sorrow, pain, and brokenness had entered the world. And guess whose fault it was? Man's. Because he said, I will be like God. So man was placed under God's curse. And further, man was banished from God's presence. Look at verse 24 of Genesis chapter 3. We read that he, God, drove out the man. He drove him out of the Garden of Eden. And he placed, or, or he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. He banished Adam and Eve, he cast them out of the garden, and then he then guarded that garden from Adam and Eve with uh, angels and flaming sword. They weren't coming back in. God banished man from the garden. And expulsion from the garden was ultimately expulsion from the life-giving presence of God. It was there in the garden that they walked with him and enjoyed God's company and his fellowship and his companionship. Man went from harmony with God to enmity with God. Now they're at odds. We've been banished from God's presence. That's man's story. We don't belong anywhere near God. Because of our sin, man was placed under God's curse, banished from God's presence, and ultimately sentenced to death. That last verse we just read said that the tree of life, the tree that if you could eat its fruit, you would live forever. The tree of life is now guarded by cherubim and flaming sword. No man's going to go back and lay hold of that fruit and eat it and live forever. No, he will die. We've been condemned to death, both physical death and eternal death, eternal condemnation and hell. The Bible teaches. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22 says that in Adam all die. What that means is that Adam's sin defiled the whole human race. What Adam did impacted you and it impacted me. And the truth of the matter is we're no different than him. You weren't born into the perfect world of Eden. No, that's, that's not the world that you were brought forth into. You were born into the broken, sinful world that Adam plunged the entire human race into. And like your ancestors, Adam and Eve, you too are a sinner. We all are. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God has a standard and it is his own glory and perfections. And none of us have measured up. None of us is anywhere close to what God is like. We are sinners. Man said, I will be like God. Why are we looking at these statements? Because there's something that you should actually do with with that statement and the one that we'll look at in just a moment. What should you do with that statement? Well, maybe I could word it this way. God wants you to identify yourself with that statement. What Adam said, you have said. What Adam did, you have done. And consequently, you are under the same sentence of death. The apple doesn't fall, far, fall from the tree, we might say. You are your father's son. Can you admit that like your father, Adam, that you too are a sinner? That's what the Bible says. It says we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Can you admit that? I find it uh, talking to people. A lot of people don't have any problem admitting that. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, that's me. And maybe other people want to sit there and, and say that they're pretty good, but that's simply not true. We're all sinners. You are a sinner. And what that means is that you, like Adam, are under God's eternal wrath. Banished from the garden forever, banished from God's presence forever, sentenced to not just physical death, but eternal death, eternal condemnation. God's wrath. And the Bible actually teaches us that it would take and it will take all of eternity for God to unleash his wrath on you for your sin. That's how bad our sin is. You are a sinner. You're under God's eternal wrath and you are under the sentence of death. I don't think Adam and Eve needed convinced of that. They went from Eden to banishment from Eden and banishment from from God's presence. and the sentence of death, they immediately felt it. Things had changed. And yet sometimes for us, I think it's hard for us to accept that. And yet that's exactly what God teaches. Man said, I will be like God. But there's actually another saying that changed the world forever. And we want to look at that as well this morning. God said, I will be like man. And like the previous statement, I'm not sure that God ever vocalized those exact words. But he definitely, we might say, embodied Those words. He embodied them. He said, I will be like man. Let's look at that statement together. I want you to turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 2, as we consider that statement. God has always been. There was never a time when God was not. He has eternally existed in three persons God the Father, God the Son. And God the Holy Spirit. We call that the Trinity. Or, or you might think of it as God is a tri-unity. He's three persons, one God. And he's always existed that way. Well, God decided to send God the Son, Jesus Christ, to earth and have him become a man. The appropriate way, I think, to, to say this is that Jesus would add to his deity humanity. Remember, he had always been. He had always existed. He was always God. And at a point in time, he decided that he would add to his deity, humanity. And he would come to earth and be born of a woman as a baby. I want you to look at Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. We're told, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And we're going to see that statement exemplified in Jesus Christ in the verses to follow. Verse 5 God said, I will be like man. What does that statement, what does that action reveal about God? Well, I I think we could frame it all the exact opposite way that we just worded what Adam was like. What does it reveal about God? It reveals to us that he is not proud. He is humble. Verse 8 says that he humbled himself. Man tried to exalt himself and elevate himself. And he said, I will be like God. And in contrast, God humbled himself and said, I will be like man. He's not proud. He's humble. And next, he's not grasping. He's stooping. Man arrogantly grasped for deity. He wanted to be like God. He, he, he was, wasn't grasping. Uh, Jesus wasn't grasping after anything. Quite the opposite, this text tells us. In contrast to that, Jesus was letting go of something. Look back at verses 5 to 7 again and, and see if you can note what it is. Verse 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though, or we might say who, even though he was in the form of God, even though Jesus was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be what? Grasped. But he made himself Nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. We read that Jesus did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He's he's not holding on to to that. Verse 6 describes the pre-incarnate. And and when I say that word, basically I mean pre-incarnate refers to Jesus before he was born. So uh, pre-baby Jesus. Verse 6 describes pre-incarnate or pre-baby Jesus Christ as being in the form of God. He was God, meaning that Jesus was divine in nature. Jesus Christ is God. He's always been God. And and we read that Jesus did not count his equality with God as something to be grasped or clutched or held on to for his own personal advantage. What does that mean? Does it mean that Jesus was no longer God when he came to earth? No, not at all. He, He remained God. But when he added uh, humanity to his deity, that that resulted in some limitations. And further, Christ did not clutch the splendor, majesty, and glory of his pre-incarnate, pre-baby Jesus manner of existence. He humbled himself, stooped, and became like a man. He added humanity to his deity. Adam sought to climb and grasp equality with God, resulting in complete and total degradation. Christ stooped to embrace equality with men, resulting in exaltation. This is amazing. He's not proud, he's humble, he's not grasping, he's stooping. He's not seeking something for himself, he's seeking something for other people. Look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then exhibit A, Jesus. When God said, I will be like man, he was doing something for the benefit of others. He was doing something for you, and he was doing something for me and for the entire world. It's a selfless act. What Adam did, he did for himself. What God did, he did for you. Unlike Adam, God is not sinning. He's sacrificing. And we might even say that he's sacrificing by becoming sin. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, you may be familiar with this verse. It says, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin. Jesus was made to be sin, who knew no sin. He was perfect. He had never sinned. To what end? To what, for what purpose? So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 8 of Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's not sinning. He's sacrificing. The Bible teaches that Jesus said, I will be like man so that he could come and take your sentence in your place. Uh, at this point, the story takes a surprising turn. When man said, I will be like God, that was met by God's sentence, right? Right? The sentence of death. God cursed man for what he did. What happened when God said, I will be like man? Well, that too, surprisingly enough, was met by a sentence. The exact same sentence that Adam received. That makes no sense. That's not fair. It doesn't even logically compute. And you're right, it doesn't make sense. It's not fair. But as I said, the Bible teaches that Jesus said, I will be like man so that he could come and take your sentence in your place. Let's look at the sentence. Jesus willingly placed himself under the curse of sin. Jesus was placed under God's curse. Jesus stepped or stooped underneath it. He was born... Into this world, that's what we're celebrating at Christmas. Right at the heart of all of our nativity sets is a little baby boy lying in a feeding trough. He was born into this world. And as we see him grow, yes, we we see him uh, exercising his deity, so to speak. He's healing people. He's opening the eyes of the blind. He's performing miracles. Why? How? Well, he's God. But we also find him As man toiling as a carpenter. He's exerting himself to make a living and and put food on the table and eat and maintain a roof over his head. He's crying at the grave of one of his friends and we're actually told that he showed up late. Why? Well, he couldn't be in two places at once. He was a man, and there he is weeping at the grave of his friend, and he's there uh, with with the two sisters of this man, Lazarus, who's died, and he's crying and he's weeping with them. These are his friends. He had friends and companions, and he he weeped, and he, he felt, and he cared about them. We find him resting because he's wearied from exhaustion. You remember he told his disciples, listen, guys, come apart and rest a while we we got we to gotta pull away and just catch up and, and recharge a little bit. If we're going to keep going like this, why? Because we're, we're walking around in human bodies. We're weak and we're tired and we're frail. We find him in the garden of Gethsemane, bleeding from bodily trauma. He lived under the curse of sin as a man without, uh, without ever once sinning himself. But it's not simply that Jesus lived under and felt the curse of sin. We need to take it further than that. Jesus became cursed and he bore the curse of sin. And all of that reached its culmination on the cross. Jesus died on the cross to take the curse for you. And and it's interesting, as you see Jesus Christ on the cross, you see all of the curse there. The Bible tells us, how did Jesus hang there on the cross? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus hung there in naked shame on the cross. We just read a verse in Genesis about that. Adam and Eve, they knew no shame of nakedness. And then after sin, they made loincloths. And they covered themselves. And there Jesus is hanging in the shame of nakedness on the cross. A shame brought by Adam and Eve's sin. He hung there with a crown of thorns, thorns that had been grown by the fall. Jesus was placed under God's curse. And Jesus, to take it further, and thinking about the, the sentence that Adam and Eve experienced, Jesus was banished from God's presence. He was driven away. According to Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, as Jesus hung there dying in anguish, he cried out to God the Father. Remember, God is three and God is one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's a tri-unity. And Jesus Christ, God the Son, as he's dying there in anguish, cries out to God the Father. And he says, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? What was he referring to? Well, God the Father had turned his face away from Jesus. He had turned his back on him. He had completely turned away. And as he turned away, he completely unleashed his wrath on Jesus Christ, hanging there on the cross. Why? Because Jesus became sin for you. God the Father turned his face away from Jesus and poured out his wrath on Jesus because Jesus was clothed, we might say, in your sin. God the Father banished him from his own presence. Just like he had done to Adam in the garden and just like God has done to you. You do not belong in the presence of God. And finally, as we think about this sentence, we should add as well that just like Adam and Eve, Jesus was sentenced to death. He died. Philippians chapter two, verse eight, if you're still there, look at verse eight. It says he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Bible teaches that Jesus lived your life. He was born a baby and lived your life in your place with no sin. His life was perfect. Jesus lived your life and Jesus died your death. That's what he's doing. Hanging there on the cross, he's taking your sentence of death, not his own. He doesn't deserve it. Jesus lived your life. Jesus died your death and Jesus paid your debt for sin. Our sin has created, or basically brought about the wrath of God. And that wrath must be satisfied. And as I said, the Bible teaches that it will take all of eternity for God to unleash his wrath on you and on me for our sins. Eternity. There is so much of God's wrath that eternity is not long enough to deal with it. God's wrath for your sin and mine Jesus lived your life, he died your death, he paid your debt for sin, and he took your full portion of God's wrath. All right there on the cross. It was all dealt with. Jesus sacrificed himself in life and death as a substitute for you to satisfy God's wrath that your sin has brought and then to restore you to God. All was well until man said, I would be like God. Was all good. Man had a relationship with God. He walked with God every day. Eden was perfect. All was well until man said, I will be like God, and God said, I will be like man, so that it might be well again. First Corinthians fifteen twenty two. I quoted the first half of this verse a little bit back, but I want to quote the second half as well. First Corinthians fifteen twenty two says, For as in Adam all die. Well, that's not the end of the verse, is it? As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus became a man to take your sentence of death and offer you the gift of eternal life. He came to restore what Adam lost. God said, I will be like man. I don't ask you, do you realize that you fit somewhere in that statement? Jesus did that for you. And just like with the first statement, you have to identify yourself with that statement. When man said, I will be like God, you have to say, yeah, that's me. I, that, I have sinned too against God and I, I too am under God's sentence of death and banished forever from his presence and life under the curse. And just like you must identify with that first statement, you must do the same with the second and realize, why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus say, I will be like man, because of you? You fit in that statement. Jesus did that for you. And so God wants you to do something with both of these statements. There's a way that you're supposed to respond to both of them. What should you do with these sayings? Two sayings that forever changed the world. Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the good news. And and what Jesus said, he says, repent and believe. And each of those words corresponds to what you need to do with those two statements. The first statement, man said, I will be like God. What do you do? You repent. And you say, yes, that is me. I am just like my father, Adam. I too am a sinner. And I'm under God's wrath. And I've been sentenced to death. I've been banished from his presence. I'm a sinner. And God, would you forgive me? I don't want my sin anymore. God, cleanse me. God, forgive me. And so the response to statement number one, where man says, I will be like God. What do we do? We repent. And the response to statement number two, where God says, I will be like man. What do we do? We believe. We believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he is the son of God. And the baby Jesus lying in a manger is both God and man. And and as he grew up, that, that was always the case. He was always God and man. And even there, hanging on the cross, the Son of God, God and man. Paying the price for your sins. Sacrificing his life as your substitute to satisfy God's wrath. What do you do with that? You believe. You say, I know that that is true. I believe that is true. And I am going to bank everything on that. On that. And you put your trust in Jesus and Him alone and what He did to save you from your sins. Jesus said, Repent and believe the gospel, the good news. Have you done that? Those are two sayings that forever changed the world. And in order to be saved, and in order to have eternal life, in order to have restored to you what Adam lost, you have to repent and believe. I want to wrap up here by reading the end of Philippians chapter two because I think it's so appropriate after we've looked at the humility of Christ and Him saying, "I would be, I will be like man." How does the this part of the passage end? Let's look at Philippians chapter two, verses eight to, eight to eleven. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him. He died and he was buried in three days in the grave. And we read that God the Father has exalted him. He raised him from the grave and he ascended up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name, on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. That is what we do at Christmas. That is what we do every day. God said, I will be like man and he has saved us from our sins. And consequently, what do we do? We bow. We've, we repent of our sins. We put our trust in Christ and his work. We say, God, save me, based on the work of Christ. And then we bow, recognizing that Jesus is king and his, our lives belong to him and we are supposed to live for him. I think the primary application of these two sayings that we've looked at is, okay, I, have to, I need to identify with both of these. I'm a sinner. I need to repent and believe. And I think if you've done that, Then there's another very natural application. Because if you look at Philippians chapter 2, back in verse 4, we read, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, and then exhibit A, Jesus. And as we look at what Jesus did for us, and how he sacrificed, and how he stooped, and how he humbled himself, and he, he, he gave of himself for our benefit, as we look at the work of Christ, that ought then to cause us to turn and say, I must do the same. I must live the same way. My life, too, must become a sacrifice. I must look for the interests of others. I must consider those more than my own interests. This is what Jesus has taught me to do. To love other people, to give of myself for other people, to care about others more than myself. And I hope by God's grace is... We go into the Christmas season, I think, a time of year that for many people becomes a very uh, self-focused, self-centered time. I hope that this time for you and your family, it'll be a time of bowing before Christ and serving one another and the people all around you because of what Jesus has done for you. Will you bow your heads with me at this time as we wrap up?